Well, good afternoon. Again, just a reminder that if you didn't, uh, please pick up uh, the sheet with regard to um, the intern and what that will consist of and uh, read that over. All right. Now let's uh, give ourselves to the worship of our God. Take the hymns of grace, hymns of grace, hymn book 429 for the beauty of the Lord, 429. <clears throat> Let's stand together as we sing. God to meet with us this afternoon.
be seated. Turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles, as Pastor Reeder said this morning. Um, I do like the electronic versions. I do not kiss my wife through a screen door. <laughs> but uh, the wonderful thing about the electronic versions is that at your fingertips you can have, if you use the Blue Letter Bible, which I use, 17 English translations at your beck and call with just the, with the touch of a finger to uh, do a comparison because there are many difficult passages <laughs> in the scriptures and we're at one of them today. We're in Ecclesiastes 3, uh, verse 15, where he circles back to a theme that he had began, or yeah, had began in chapter 1. If you want to turn to chapter 1, verse 9, you can, or you can just look at chapter 3, um, verse 15, and it will read almost verbatim, Ecclesiastes 1, 9 says, that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done, and then his conclusion there is, so there is nothing new under the sun. The last phrase in verse 15 here is the one I'm speaking of that is so uh, different of the of the 17 versions that I <laughs> looked at in the Blue Letter Bible. There were 12 distinctly uh, different ways of translating that verse. Now, some of the words have a more uh, maybe nuanced uh, meaning where you could have things that are past versus things that are passing by or have passed by. That which has been, that which is, has already been, and that which will be has already been. <laughs> I'm having trouble. <laughs> that which is has already has been already. And that which will be has already been. Yet God seeks what is pursued. That phrase, yet God seeks what is pursued, is the phrase that is uh, so different in so many versions. And I'd just like to take a second here to uh, recommend that you have a primary version to read and recommend that it would be one of the versions that follow the uh, text uh, more literally such as the NAS and the New King James. Old King James is still great to me, ESV. But also, you can find a lot of help with the other translations because sometimes it's not the words, literally, that are uh, give the meaning. Sometimes there are phrases uh, that have uh, a meaning apart from the bare words themselves, and I think um, in this case, um, the New Living Translation might be helpful. Where it's, they say, they translate it, God makes the same things happen over and over. And I think this is in keeping with the context of uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, certainly. So those things are, are helpful. Verse 16, he sees oppression. We've talked about turnabouts, and he goes from one topic to another, but also proverb-like. We will see 
uh, topics revisited, just like we did from verse 15, and we will see it again in, in uh, these verses later in the book regarding oppression. And that's why I'm going to go down through uh, verse 3 of chapter 4, because he takes a little sidebar um, there in 18 or 19, and then he's going to come back to the subject of oppression. So we'll read the first three verses there as well. I think of the keenest interest to me in this chapter, um, our beginning around verse uh, 20, 19-20, where he's talking about the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts being the same. He, he sees in the oppression that um, in his heart he says God is testing them to see so that they can see that they're beasts. So, so and the beast is the, the wild beast I believe is, is in view here. It's interesting that the legacy keeps the word beast. Some of your translations probably have animals. And it is a word that is used for just animals in general. But he makes this point that they all have the same breath. True, all true points all go to the same place. Yes, we all go to the grave. Yes, we all came from dust and all return to dust. But this is a good example. Of the, the danger of this book is you must not read it in isolation to the rest of the word of God. And that's true of any any book of the Bible, even the book of Romans. I wouldn't want that to be the only uh, book that I had. It would be one of my <laughs> preferred ones if we could only have one. But thankfully, uh, we don't have to make that choice. But this book can be dangerous if you read it only in isolation uh, to itself. And that's why I'm beginning more strongly to believe that this is an excellent book for you, Christian, you may have forgotten what life was like before you were born again. And you can see the world as the unbeliever sees it, and you can help them see that, yes, this is the truth. This is what life is like under the sun, but there is something new. There is a new covenant. There is one who came to uh, show uh, light and life uh, by the resurrection. And so that's what's missing here. That's, uh, I think, key to, the, to this book. It's more what it's missing <laughs> and what it points you to, hopefully. So I'll start at verse 15, reread it, and then we'll go on through uh, chapter 4, verse 3. That which is has, already, has been already and that which will be has already been. Yet God seeks what is pursued, or makes things happen over and over, as you will. Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. I said in my heart, and here's how he consoles himself in his heart, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man, for a time for every matter and for every work is there. Again, back to the first uh, verses of this book, or chapter. Season and a time 
I said in my heart concerning the sons of men, God is testing them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. For the fate of the sons of men and the fate of beasts is the same fate for each of them. As one dies, so dies the other, and they all have the same breath. So there is no advantage for man over beast, for all is vanity. All go to the same place, all came from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows that the breath of man ascends upward, and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. If you've been at funerals of uh, believers or unbelievers, but I hear it from unbelievers more when they'll say so-and-so has gone to a better place. Here's a question. I wouldn't recommend you do it at the funeral. That's not the time. But here's the question. How do you know that they went to a better place? Solomon asked the question. Or Kohala asked the question. How do you know? What is the basis for your believing that? Christian, you can say, well, because one who has been to heaven, who reside, resides and resided there, has come down and told us the truth about uh, life after death. I have seen, verse 22, nothing is better than that man should be glad in his works, for that is his portion. For who will bring him to see what will occur after him? And of course, the Christian has the answer to that. Who will bring you to see what will be after? <laughs> Jesus will bring you there. So we have answers. But from the viewpoint of the man <clears throat> who doesn't have revelation, uh, he's just doubt. How do you know? What is your basis? Then I looked again. So it goes back to the subject of oppression had all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them, and on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I lauded the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who never has been. I can't explain how you can call someone a one or a who if they have never been. But there it is. But better off than both of them is the one who has never been, who has never seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Now take your hymns of grace once again and turn to 184. 184, come behold the wondrous mystery. 184. Let's stand together as we sing.
seated. Well, on these afternoon services, we've been looking together at church offices, and we've noticed together from the Word of God that there are two church offices that are found. There's the elder and the deacon, and we are now considering together the office of the elder, whose primary task is to be an overseer. He's to oversee the people of God. He's to do that as uh, one whom God has appointed for the task. He is to be a father uh, to a household. He's to be like a shepherd to his sheep or his flock. He's to be a leader or a ruler like that of a government or a community. And a couple weeks ago, we began considering together the qualifications of any man who would serve in the office of the elder. And therefore, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let us read them once again, and then we'll take up another four of them, God willing, this afternoon. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 1, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle peaceful, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall under the condemnation occurred by the devil, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And that's where we will stop our reading. I, I would remind you that as Paul sets these requirements or qualifications for any man who's to serve as a pastor in a church, that these are what we call non-negotiable, uncompromising standards that must be achieved. He must be. It is a particle of necessity. He must be these things if he's to serve in the eldership. The church is not to admit into the office of elder any man who does not meet these biblical qualifications. And to appoint one who is unqualified is to forfeit all ground of expectancy of God's blessing upon the assembly. How do we expect God to bless 
if we express anarchy by bringing in to the eldership men who are not qualified, how, how does God bless that assembly? How, how does God bless an assembly who brings in a man who may meet 90% of these qualifications, but not all of them? How does God bless that assembly? And isn't that what we desire, to, to know of God's blessing upon us as a community of believers? So what are those qualifications? And, and Paul, here in 1 Timothy 3, also in Titus chapter 1, sets those qualifications before us. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first two. First of all, he's to be above reproach. Above reproach. Some of your translations may have blameless. And the idea is that there's no grounds to lay hold of him. There's no grounds to lay hold of him. There, there's no reason for his indictment, an indictment to be leveled against him. Now, it's not saying he's a sinless man. Your, your pastors, your, your elders have feet of clay. And they experience the same temptations and challenges that every other man faces. So there may be occasions where things may pop up. Someone may come along. I'm preaching the same sermon I did a couple weeks ago. But uh, someone may come along and say, you know, uh, Pastor so-and-so, uh, he seemed to speak a bit harshly. He seemed to have a, a bite to his words when he was talking to me. Uh, I think he might be an angry man. And maybe on one occasion he was speaking to you and something came up and, and he did get a little hot uh, because of the topic or because of something else going on. And, and you think to yourself, oh, should he be an elder? And most of the people would rise up and say, that's not the man we know. That, that's not who he is. So, so it's just a reminder, there can be occasions when you might see something of his flesh come out, but that's not who he is. That, that's unusual. And, and so you, you demonstrate a little grace, I trust, because these men have the same struggles, temptations, and challenges that you have. Now, if he's known for this, he's known to have a hot temper, that's his, he's got a reputation of being a bit gruff and harsh. Well, well then maybe he's not qualified. Right? But, but he's to be a blameless man. He's, the, he's to be a man of consistent piety in character and conduct. So he's to be above reproach. And, and that's the canopy upon which all the other requirements. What, what's it mean to be a blameless man? What does that look like? And then Paul begins to open that up for us. Number one, or number two, whichever way you want to number them, he's the husband of one wife. Literally, he is a one-woman man. He is known of being a one-woman man. He, he, he loves his wife. He, he cares for his wife. It, it, it is to focus upon his moral behavior. He, he's not a man who, who's, who's a womanizer. He, he's not a flirt. He, he doesn't go around and, 
and seek to enter into conversations with other women, just teasing them and, and playing along with them. No, you know, when you think of this man, if he's a married man, you think of only one woman that's in his life. He, he has eyes for only one, and he has that reputation um, with regard to his behavior. As, as somebody said, many men marry once. Many men marry once but are not one-women men. They may have married only once, but they could be in danger of having eyes for others, and that would be disqualifying. He is to be a one-woman man, not only on paper, not only on the license, but also in his heart and in his conduct. Well, then we come to these next three. These next three we see here in verse 2. He's to be temperate, prudent, and respectable. Temperate, prudent, and respectable. And, and as I was looking at these three things, I, I was trying to figure out if, if there was a way to bring these three together. There, there's some overlapping in the terms that Paul uses here. But one of the things I found helpful, helpful was to think this way. When it comes to being temperate, we're thinking of his mind, how he thinks. When it, when it comes to being prudent, we're thinking about how he responds or something of his conduct. And when it comes to being respectable, we're, we're thinking about how others may observe him. So as you look at this man who you might consider to be one day your elder or your pastor, you're to think of him with regard to his thoughts, with regard to how he responds, and with regard to how others look upon him. I found that as a helpful way to think about these three terms, which, like I said, in many ways overlap one another. So first of all, he's to be temperate, which means sober-minded. He's to be sober-minded. The, the root meaning of the word is, is that of self-control or sober when we think of sobriety or being sober, what comes to your mind? The opposite. You think of a man who, who's drunk. And, and I've been around, unfortunately, a few people that have been drunk, and they don't really deal with reality. They seem to be thinking things in just a weird way, or they seem to be somewhat scatterbrained, or, or they're not thinking clearly. You know, a, a drunk goes out into the middle of a road with a semi coming. And, and because he's not thinking clearly and rationally, he thinks he can stand there and hold out his hand and stop that semi. Because he's not thinking clearly. He's not a sober thinking man. Sometimes when you've been around those who've been intoxicated, they, they do things that for the lack of a better term, are just dumb. And you look at them and say, what are you 
thinking. I, I can remember an occasion when I, when I was dealing with a man who was drunk. And, and I was there to help him. And, and he just acted foolishly. He began to make all kinds of accusations. You know, I, I remember him saying, you called your son, didn't you? Which I hadn't. But you called your son. You're going to have the police here on me, aren't you? The state police are going to arrive any time. And, 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 and I'm like, what are you talking about? I, I, I came over because I thought there might be something. And, and he just wasn't thinking clearly. To be temperate is to have a sound mind. That's how it's translated in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 13. It's a sound mind. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 6, the thought expressed is someone who's not asleep, but he's alert. He, he's sober. It, it speaks of a man who, who's able to use self-restraint. He, he thinks through things clearly. William Hendrickson says, a temperate man is a man that is filled with spiritual and moral earnestness. Spiritual and moral earnestness. He's balanced. He's calm. He's careful. He's steady. He's sane. Now, why is that important? Because a pastor is someone that you put some confidence in. And you hope that as you speak to him, and you hope as he has to deal with certain issues and certain things about your life, that he's going to be thinking clearly and rationally and realistically. He'll be careful with what he does with the information that he receives, he's not going to go off running at the mouth to people that don't need to know that information. You can confide in him. And you don't worry about whether or not he's going to go off and tell others. But he's going to help you to think through the issue and, and respond biblically to what you're going through. There are things that pastors are told that they go to their grave to, with and no one else knows. You want to have that type of confidence in your elder. That what you tell him is safe with him, unless for some reason it has to be made public for some reason. And to have a pastor that you cannot trust with that puts you in danger. And so he must be a prudent man. He also, being, a, I mean, might be a temperate man. He, he, he also in being a temperate man, is a man who's able to deal 
with realities in his own life in a good way. What do I mean by that? Well, I suppose in the ministry, two of the greatest challenges are discouragement and successes. There's discouragement and how you handle discouragement. There are, there are times when you've got to deal with things that just break your heart. Or, or you deal with individuals who disappoint you. Or they end up walking away from God. And that's discouraging. And the man has to deal realistically with that. And he has to learn to wait upon God. I, I learned a long time ago, I can't fix everything. Now, when I was 32, I thought I could. I thought anybody that came along with problems just sit down with me 20 minutes. We can clear this up. <laughs> oh, if it was only that easy. But now, many years later after 32, <laughs> many years later after 32, I realize I can't. And there's sometimes I just have to cry out to God and say, you've got to do this. But I've got to continue to do the work you've called me to do. Because there are times, I'll be honest, I just want to go to bed, put the covers over my head, and just not bother with anybody. Or successes. You know? Nothing like getting done preaching and being at the back door and somebody meeting you at the door saying, boy, I've not heard preaching like this in years. Now, I always take that as maybe you meant bad things, but I always take it. That's good. Wow. You're, you're another Spurgeon. Did you ever hear Spurgeon? No, well, then. All right. Or, 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 or to see, or to see a, a, an occasion in which there, there's some difficulty or a, a challenge that a family's going through or someone's going through individually and, and you see God do a work in which they come through it and, and, and God is glorified and, and you've been a part of that. You've been there to help them and you've watched them grow and you're like a father who watches his, you know, his son who, who accomplishes some task for the first time and you're like, yes, yes. And then begin to think, wow, maybe I should be preacher of the year. When that's not the case, he, he needs to think rationally. He needs to think biblically. And I learned a long time ago in the academy, you know, you take the discouragements, the most discouraging thing, put that in a file, and then you take the most positive thing, put that in a file, and sooner or later you, you get a nice medium as to how you ought to live and respond so there's temperate. Secondly, uh, there's, he's to be prudent. How, how does he respond? The, the, the word is the idea of self-control, the ability and the power to regulate one's own personal life. He, he's not driven by his own emotions. He, he, he's not driven by the desires of his own flesh. He's not driven by the desires of, 
of the eyes of the pride of, and the pride of life. Th- those are not the things that drive him. But he's a man who, who's disciplined. He, he's sensible. He, he, he responds with care and discretion and good judgment in handling practical matters. He, he, he responds and he lives motivated by a genuine love for God's people. He loves the people of God. And he wants to see them grow in their walk with God. So his response is one of, how can I help them in their relationship to God? How can I benefit them so that they're enjoying their fellowship and relationship to God Almighty? He's a man that, that needs to have control over his passions. Over his time, over his behavior, his whole pattern of life. He's a man that ought to think before he acts. He ought not simply to respond without giving serious thought to the whole circumstance. Therefore, he's to be a man who is diligent. I know there are those who think being a pastor is probably the cushiest job in the world. He, he works one day a week. Man, who wouldn't like a job like that? And I can remember one time years ago, some woman speaking to my wife, asking her, how do you handle being a pastor's wife? I mean, the guy must be underfoot all day long. Because he doesn't do anything until Sunday. <laughs> she, that poor woman asked the wrong woman. <laughs> because being a pastor is more than being a preacher. It's being a shepherd and caring for the people of God. Being a pastor is more than just getting a good outline. And then hopefully preaching that outline in a way that makes sense. A man who is going to feed your soul has to be a man who is diligently studying the Word of God. That he might feed and care for your soul. Therefore, he needs to be disciplined. Oftentimes, a pastor doesn't punch a clock. Have any of you seen my time card? We don't punch a clock. But we've got to be disciplined to get into the study and sit down and study the Word of God. And as you're studying the Word of God, you're thinking about people that you're going to preach to and how this can best benefit them and to give yourselves to those things. He, he needs to be disciplined. I'm thankful that 37 years ago, when, when I first arrived here, and we weren't even a church, we were just a group of people, and the church in Grand Rapids, the elders there had my oversight as, long as, as well as the one in Anderson, Indiana, and, 
and, and the church in Grand Rapids gave me this sheet. I still have them. And it was like a timesheet. They wanted to see how I spent my day. And they wanted to see how much time I spent in the Word and how much time in counsel and how much time with my family. And what that looked like. And it was very beneficial to help me to discipline myself with regard to the work of the ministry. Being prudent meaning he needs to be a moral man. He needs to be a responsible. He's not impulsive. He needs to be clear-headed. He needs to be a prudent man. And then next, he needs to be respectable. His conduct. His conduct in the church as well as outside the church. Remember, look, look down to verse 7. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church. He must be known as a man who, who can be respected and, and looked up to because of his orderly behavior. Others observe it and watch him. This points, I believe, to his outward conduct that expresses his inward attitude. Because he is temperate and prudent, it is demonstrated in how he lives. Every elder must be temperate, prudent, and respectable. And then he goes on to say, hospitable. Hospitable. The, the word that is used here means generous to guest or a friend of strangers. He, he has a love for people. His, his home is open. He has a willingness to, to minister to others even around the dining room table. It means he has a, they have an open door to his home. He, he's approachable. He's not ashamed of his domestic life. He doesn't care or it, it, it doesn't bother him that people come into his home. Where am I most relaxed? Where will you see me, the real me? It'll be in my home. It'll be in my home. And so a pastor must be willing to have an open door. Come and visit. Give a phone call first, maybe, but come and visit. Right. His domestic life is not one that he would be ashamed of. He would not bring shame. William Barclay says, The Christian leader must be a man with an open heart and an open house. Open heart and an open house. And then finally tonight, or this afternoon, just take up one more. He must be, and this is the one of the gift qualifications. We said that every one of these qualifications, every Christian man ought to be. There's not a Christian man who can sit here and say, I'm glad I'm not a pastor, because I don't know temperance in my life, and, and, and I don't want anybody to see how we live in my house. And No, every Christian man ought to be temperate, prudent respectable, hospitable, 
But when it comes to the gift, he, he needs the pastor needs to be apt to teach. Apt to teach. He must be a man who's able to teach the Word of God. It means, as he speaks, he will surely do as he speaks. He, he not only teaches with his lips, but he teaches with his life. This requirement means at least these three things. He, he has an intelligent grasp on the basic content and doctrines of the Word of God. He has a basic grasp upon God's Word. He has a proven ability to communicate that truth to others. So, so at minimal, it means, again, not every elder labors in word and in doctrine. But every elder must be apt to teach. And at minimal, that means he, he's able to sufficiently teach a person to person the truths of God's word. He's able to give instruction concerning the Word of God and, and apply the truth of God's Word to a person's heart. It, it may be one-on-one. -on -one. It may not be from the pulpit. But he's able to instruct others about the Word of God. In the broadest sense, he's able to labor in Word and in doctrine and to minister to the assembly of God's people. But he's a man that that loves the truth. And he wants to make that truth known to others and applied to their lives. So he has an intelligent grasp on the basic content and doctrine of the Word of God. He has the proven ability to communicate that truth to others. And thirdly, he's a man who is able to explain the Scriptures ac accurately to other people in a way that's profitable to them spiritually. He must be able to take the Word of God and explain the Word of God and then apply that Word of God in a way in which the people who hear the Word apply it and it's a benefit to them and their walk with God. He must be apt to teach. Mark Deaver has set down several things with regard to what it means to be apt to teach. I'll just give them to you. He, he rightly interprets the Holy Scripture. He is competent to clearly expound the gospel of Christ. He is competent to explain the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. He has a good understanding of ecclesiology. He is confident to refute false teaching. He is competent to explain the Scriptures adequately and explicitly to individuals in the ways they would be spiritually benefited by. He is competent to counsel believers suffering from emotional, spiritual, and intellectual problems. And he is good at making disciples. Those are the things that Mark Deaver fits down as man who is apt to teach. So here then are 
five more, is that what I gave you, five more qualifications of a man who's to serve in the eldership? He is to be temperate, think sober-mindedly. He's to be prudent. He's to respond biblically to the truth. He, he is to be respectable. He's to have some who observe him and see him to truly be a man of God. He is to be hospitable. He's to have an open house. And he is to, apt, to be apt to teach. Who's worthy of these things? That's what any man ought to respond with these. Who's worthy of such? By God's grace, may God raise up such men for the good of our souls and for the good of our church. There are still more qualifications. We haven't finished them. But how we pray that God would give us an eldership. And by the way, let me say this because the question's been asked. An elder in the church isn't necessarily a man who labors in word and in doctrine. There are those who, who are appointed elders who may have other full-time jobs, but they, they still have the responsibility of overseeing the church. And, and there's not two qualifications with regard to those elders. One qualification that all the elders must meet. So a church may not have two or three men who who labor in word and doctrine. Somebody somebody mentioned to me the other day that, you know, Pastor John MacArthur's in his 80s, and up until a couple weeks ago, when apparently he had some blockage or something, you know, he, he's going strong preaching. He's 80, and, and he's saying, I'm going to preach till I die. And I told them, well, if I had the staff like John MacArthur had and could preach and only preach, <laughs> you know, that would be wonderful. But... I don't have that, so I have other responsibilities. I'm, as I've mentioned before, I'm the lead pastor, the senior pastor, the executive pastor, the youth pastor, the music pastor, but praying that, that God would give us other men who would be able to, to labor in the eldership for your good and for mine uh, as a church. And so even as we have the advisory ballots next week, I trust you've made it a matter of prayer as to perhaps other men that God might be raising up in our assembly who would labor as elders as well here in the church. But may God help us, as I've mentioned before, as we think of elders in the church to continue looking upward, looking to God to give us such grace, looking inward Having examining our own hearts and lives to see if these qualities and characters are part of us. And may we look outward to see if God would raise up other men who would serve in the eldership. Well, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we again give you thanks for your word. You've not left us alone that You've given us that Word even with regard to the appointment of elders. And so, Father, we would ask that You would be pleased to bring in, raise up men who would be able to shepherd the flock of God, even here in this place, for the good of this congregation. Father, we pray that You would continue to keep us, guard us, 
And may we continue to pursue that which is always pleasing in your sight. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that's demonstrated to us every day. As we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, as we close our day together, take the hymns of grace one more time. And 420 in the hymns of grace, a charge to keep I have, a God to glorify, who gave His Son my soul to save and fit me for the skies. 420 hymns of grace. Let's stand together as we sing.